City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. City Limits and it's the fourth Wednesday of the month. We're going to be talking today to Dave Sweeney for obvious reasons. Dave's the anti-nuclear campaigner at Australian Conservation Foundation and unfortunately we have to talk to him this week because of the events of the past week. I don't think we need to tell people what they were but we'll certainly do an analysis of that later in the program. And first up we've got another, well we've got Meg Kimber and uh, Zeb Peak. I'm Kevin Healy on the show. Karina's pressing the buttons and doing a magnificent job because without her we wouldn't even be on air. But uh, Meg, another, we've got a second interview this morning mm. as well. Yep, we'll talk to Han from the Centre for Public Integrity. They've got a webinar coming up about federal government keeping secrets, um, I guess sort of freedom of information stuff. And we also will touch on, you know, we've seen Christian Porter design recently. And by the way, I just want to say I found it pretty rich the way that that was framed by the by Scott Morrison. Um, like they're doing everyone a big favour and they're paragons of best practice. You know, oh, it's a grey area. So we're just going to step down. <laughs> You're clearly just getting rid of a big, big problem. So um, anyway, we'll, we'll chat with Han about... Um, political donations, transparency in the federal government and why the National Integrity Commission still, after three three years, I think, still is not a reality. And even if it was a reality, how much power would it have to investigate some of these uh, issues that we're seeing all the time in federal politics? I would have thought also, Meg, even if we had one, we'd probably need a second one, a subsidiary one, just to handle Christian Porter alone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree. The Christian, yeah, no, I'm not going to say anything. I mean, he's already sued he, some people for defamation, so I'm just going to keep quiet about that. He, he keeps bobbing yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, Zeb, anything you wanted to, to raise? Uh, well, I found some cheery news in The Guardian uh, about the coalition proposing to scrap recovery plans for 200 endangered species and habitats. So that is exciting. Basically, from what I could glean, there are two kind of documents that surround endangered species uh, to make ministers responsible for protecting them. There are recovery plans, which are like related to actual, they make ministers legally bound to make decisions that are consistent with them. Uh, and then there's just conservation advice, which is not legally binding, but kind of similar. And the idea is to get rid of the recovery plan thing and just have the conservation advice thing. So, yeah, the, apparently there was also uh, an independent body that like advise this to be done on the basis that recovery plans aren't great, but it seems quite flawed just because even though recovery plans could be improved, taking them away and not having any legally binding <laughs> things for ministers to follow seems worse. That's a weird way of improving something, just getting rid of it. Similar to the Christian Porter problem as well, I guess. Let's <laughs> be like, okay, bye. <laughs> It's called shrugging your shoulders, and I think it's also called you don't give a stuff anyway, which is the real problem. Yeah. But, um, on, on that very theme, in fact, um, we, we mentioned some time ago the, the young women, young students who took the minister, Susan Lay, the environment minister, to court over Whitehaven Coal, and the court ruled that she had a duty to protect young Australians from climate change if she approved the mine unconditionally. And she has since appealed that decision, by the way, and says she doesn't have, <laughs> doesn't have obviously any commitment to young people at all. But this week she approved it. You'll be pleased to hear. And this is even the while the appeal's still going on. She's approved the mine yeah. and gives them the right to extract 10 million tonnes a year of thermal coal and semi-soil coking. So there you are. And the other factor, another interesting, she also recently 
approved a different mine at Russell Vale. And in that, her argument was, and this is the argument they so they use so often, and it's such a, I think, such an illogical and, and such a dishonest argument. She says the old argument that if we don't give it, then that coal will get from somewhere else. So this coal we're going to export from this Russell Vale coal mine. If we don't do it, if she doesn't give the approval, then some other country will do the same. So it'll have no effect on climate change, whatever. That's the argument she used for approving it. Oh, that's so frustrating. Mm. Oh, I just, yeah. yeah. I, I give up trying to... <laughs> try and see some any form of like reasonable argument behind these things yeah yeah you didn't think that was a reasonable argument obviously (laughs) there but i take it we're going to be talking of course later to uh dave sweeney about the nuclear submarines but i found it was interesting because thursday morning when we woke up thursday morning as dave will probably tell us as well to the news and Mm. It was interesting, in the Financial Review, there was a four-page lift-out promoting business in South Australia, and it said, in the next seven years, major shipbuilding projects will add 4,000 direct jobs to Naval Group, the French company in charge of a $90 billion project to build a fleet of submarines, etc., um, which is really interesting because mm. by the time the, the ink was dry and the paper came out, that was completely redundant and the 4,000 jobs had just completely disappeared. Uh, uh, what? I thought and, that was what the whole thing was about. I thought that was, was what everything about the well, there will be, was about. There will be jobs other, there will be jobs, I guess, jobs. replacing them, building. Yeah, but, but nonetheless, yeah, those 4,000 yeah. jobs went out the window. And the other interesting one was three people had um, – there was a feature article – called Trust and Diversity, a Geoeconomic Strategy for Australia-US Alliance by three three authors um, for the US Study Centre. And they made a point on the same morning in a think piece, they said, to be fair, it's unclear what concrete actions Canberra would or should want to the US to take. This is about defence. While the government remains steadfast in its refusal to concede Beijing's political demands, Australia also does not want to escalate the situation, risking additional restrictions on exports. Well, once again, by the time that ink was dry, the the bird had flown the coop because we'd already taken that risk. I mean, clearly, we escalated the situation and we have risked additional restrictions on exports. So two articles, by the time they came out Thursday morning, were totally dead in the water. Yeah, it took everyone by surprise. Yeah, it just really highlights how, you know, there are people in power that are making decisions that affect millions and millions of people's lives and we don't even know about it until it's already done. Mm. No, that's right. I, just, I was just thinking, flown the coop and dead in the water. A few mixed metaphors there. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> and I suppose dead in the water is okay, though, when you're talking about nuclear submarines. Yeah. Well, um, we'll get to our first guests in a minute. If there's any last little bits of news, we've got a couple of minutes before we need to take a break. No, not really. Uh, I, I was going to comment on the fact that um, I think it just shows where they're going. The the Women's Affairs Ministry in 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 Kabul, uh, the Taliban have now renamed the Ministry for the Propagation of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice. So I think that shows where they're going in that area. Oh gee, yeah, really, yeah. The situation in Afghanistan continues to be really concerning to say the least, and yeah, after 20 years of us being involved in there and now we're looking at nuclear submarines, uh, yeah, and this alliance with America and and the UK, I'm sure Dave will have more to say about that too. Yeah. Female-identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. 
love comes your way What can I say You feel the hell You change your They are also allowed to break into your phone if they have a reason to do so. And what we end up with is a surveillance state. What we end up with is multiple government agencies that have legal powers to surveil you when you have not been proven guilty. The underlying tenet of Western law is that you are innocent until proven guilty. What we're moving to is suspicion is enough to take away rights in order to build a case towards guilt. And that's not a legal framework that we agreed to. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR Community Radio and we're joined by Han, who's the Director of the Centre of Public Integrity. Um, welcome, Han. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So we just want to talk today, there's been a little bit in the news recently about, I guess, the way that money is moving around in Canberra. The Centre for Public Integrity is working towards, among many things, having a National Integrity Commission. Can you just give us a bit of an overview about what the difference is between Commonwealth and state governments in terms of integrity commissions? Sure. So at the moment, there's no agency at a federal level that can investigate allegations of corruption in government and the public sector. But we have great examples at a state level where there's corruption investigations happening through their integrity commissions. So, for example, in New South Wales, they've got a really effective ICAC who's taken down a lot of corrupt politicians, including Eddie O'Bead in McDonald, and their investigations are ongoing, including into the current Premier Gladys Berejiklian. So there's plenty of examples and case studies of what works in terms of upholding integrity in politics and the federal government really doesn't need to look far to find integrity commissions that are working effectively to investigate allegations of corrupt conduct. Mm. And when you're talking about corrupt conduct, as a general overview, you're looking at things like political donations, lobby groups, the influence of private influence basically in federal politics. Broadly defined, corruption is the undue influence of politics and that can include any person who's affecting the honest exercise of public administration. Each integrity commission at a state level sort of defines it a little bit differently, but that's broadly what they look at. And then the important thing is that whoever is the chief commissioner of each corruption agency has the ability to decide whether the allegations at hand are serious or systemic examples of corrupt conduct. So They have a a wide purview, but it's limited to allegations that are serious or systemic and allegations that would, if proven, be a criminal offence or a disciplinary offence or breach a code of conduct. So there's some limitations around it, I guess, to make sure that they're kind of focusing on the most important allegations. Mm. But at the moment there's no... Oh, sorry, you go, Kevin. The federal government has drawn up a, a draft bill of some sort, but critics keep telling us that it's quite inadequate and doesn't cover many of the things that would normally come under corruption. Can you comment on that? Right. So the federal government announced three years ago that it would establish a National Integrity Commission. To date, they haven't put their bill through Parliament. We've seen an exposure draft of that bill and it's if it was implemented, it would be the weakest corruption watchdog in the country and wouldn't be able to effectively investigate or expose corruption. Some of the reasons for that are its jurisdiction. It wouldn't be able to properly investigate um, members of parliament and it wouldn't be able to start investigations unless it had some evidence of a criminal offence, which is sort of defeats the purpose of starting an investigation in the first place. If you already know that a crime's been committed, just refer it to the police, you know. 
So there's lots of serious weaknesses with that bill and we don't believe that it would be able to do its job. And in the instances of stuff that's come up recently or in the last few years, I guess thinking of things like how much Parliament is sitting with COVID and how much oversight there is about what's happening, things about where people are getting their political donations from, and we've just seen Christian Porter recently resign as a result of a big question mark hanging over where he got money from to pay for his private legal fees in a defamation case against the ABC. Would any of these things be covered by the proposed Integrity Commission? Yeah, again, it depends on which model you're looking at, but a strong, independent and effective Integrity Commission should have the jurisdiction to look into things such as the sports rort scandal, the spending on car parks that the audit office recently looked at, potentially this recent allegation of hidden money by Christian Porter. But it would really be up to the commissioner of the day to decide whether those things would be looked at. But our view is that it certainly should be investigated by a national body. The problem at the moment is that without a National Integrity Commission, there's no structural systemic way of investigating these instances. So scandal after scandal occurs and each one is dealt with a little bit differently depending on the politics of the day. So, for example, sports rorts, Scott Morrison got the head of PMC to investigate whether Bridget McKenzie had breached the Ministerial Code of Conduct and that report from the PMC was never made public and they said that she was fine and hadn't done anything wrong. She then got taken off the front bench but then recently in the reshuffle got back put on. So, you know. Just wait long enough and just pop them back in. (laughs) Right, but but there's no rules as to how these allegations Mm. get dealt with currently. And, you know, the Christian Porter example is the most recent where the Prime Minister sought advice on whether Christian Porter had breached the ministerial standards and they didn't even admit to him doing that. They just said it's a bit of a grey area and maybe he should step down. So, again, it's just sort of different treatment of each scandal. You mentioned the referral to the head of PMC, the Prime Minister and Cabinet Department. Now, he's an appointment by government from their own ranks, effectively, and he, he was also asked to report on the sexual allegations in Parliament House and has yet not come up with a report. I'm sure these are fringe areas which probably don't come under, but they're still serious that the government keeps appointing people to all these positions coming from its own ranks. For instance, the recent Human Rights Commissioner who came from the Institute of Public Affairs and was a Liberal Party of Parachik. We've also seen as far as I know, since Abbott got in, every single appointment to the Fair Work Commission has come from the employer's side of um, industrial relations. So, you know, these are things that mightn't come under a commission, but they're pretty serious, aren't they? Right, that's right. And that's one of the reasons why, with the National Integrity Commission, we need the appointment of the Chief Commissioner and the Assistant Commissioners to be made by a bipartisan parliamentary committee so that it's not... Um, so that these investigations are run independently with bipartisan support because, as you said, running an inquiry internally without any public reporting by someone who has previously had connections with the Liberal Party is not accountability as it should be. On a perhaps related topic, just in terms of how government operates, we've seen um, Australia's really lacklustre kind of response to the IPCC's report on climate change and and the seriousness of that. And we've seen, I think, the Australian government successfully lobbying to have the Great Barrier Reef kept off the World Heritage List. Any comment or any thoughts about the influence of lobby groups in federal politics? We've done a lot of research on political donations from the major industries. The resources industry I guess it's hard to know without having an integrity commission in place how much influence lobbyists and political donors have, but we can look at the scale of the donations being put in place and at least guess that there might be some influence there. But without any proper investigation, it's kind of hard to link those things together. The resources and energy industry is the largest political donor in the country and over the last 20 years... They've donated $136 million to the major parties. The Liberal Party received $13 million of this and the Labor Party received 
million. So I guess that can start to give us a picture of the webs of access and influence. But as I said, without any independent investigation, it's very hard to unpick those webs when the public doesn't have access to that information. It's great that the centre does the research that it does to be able to get the information out there as much as possible. And that brings us to the um, webinar that you've got coming up and talking about freedom of information and access to government statistics and information. Um, can you tell us more about that? Sure. So on Friday at 12 o'clock, we're hearing from Paul Farrell, who's an investigative journalist with ABC 730 Report, um, and Geoffrey Watson, who's a barrister and on the board of the Centre for Public Integrity. Geoffrey was uh, the barrister representing Rex Patrick, Senator Rex Patrick, in his recent win over the federal government's claim that documents that Senator Patrick FOI'd were cabinet in confidence when really they were not to do with cabinet at all. So that would be great to hear directly from Geoffrey on that. And Paul Farrell is an investigative journalist who's done amazing work trying to dig up things that the government's trying to hide. So it'll be a, a great a great session. Mm. So that's Friday, September 24? Yeah, at midday. And you can uh, register by going to our Twitter account or our Facebook account. The links are there. I'll come back to what Geoffrey Watson copied in a moment. He's made one in the last couple of days. But... Greensill, a company that collapsed um, owing millions around the world, Julie Bishop's company, Julie Bishop and Partners, was signed up as part of the, to, to be PR for it and a lobbyist for it, 600000 a year US she was getting. She approached both um, Frydenberg and Corman when he was um, at the World Economic Forum, and, but said she wasn't actually lobbying. And I noticed that, because she wasn't at that stage a registered lobbyist for, for that particular Entity, but I noticed Jeffrey Watson's come out and said any external person assessing what she was doing would say that is lobbying, and he's come out attacking it. But again, it's a situation where an ex-government minister is involved, but says she wasn't actually lobbying. Right, that's right, and I think it points to the problems with our system in terms of definitions of lobbyists. The current lobbyist register at a national level doesn't include any lobbyists that are working in-house for organisations. It only includes external firms that you might hire. And equally, we have problems where former ministers and members of parliament uh, are doing work and may or may not have a formal contract with a, a lobbyist firm, but they're obviously representing interests of those others. The other thing that it points to is that we need to have a better cooling off period in our lobbyist regulations so that ministers and members of parliament can't represent a private firm in that lobbying capacity for at least five years after they've sat in parliament. That's how long they wait in Canada and we think that's suitable given that it will allow a turnover of members in parliament and election cycle or two uh, before that former member can re-engage. And we think that's necessary to stop former ministers and MPs using their connections to gain uh, private benefit. In most of the given souls, roughly five minutes. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So we're looking for an extension on that. Just a little bit longer than five minutes. Um, we're going to have to wind it up there. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Han. It's Han from the Centre for Public Integrity, and they've got a, a webinar coming up about government secrecy. Friday, September 24 at 12 p.m. And we'll pop the details in the show notes. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is ours.
I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people. Because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders, this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Okay, we're back on City Limits and we've got Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation. He's, of course, their anti-nuclear campaigner and uh, we get Dave on pretty regularly because, unfortunately, these issues keep arising. But, Dave, of course, the big one this week has been the nuclear sub-issue. But just before we go there, because also it's created problems with France, but just recently, uh, Macron, the French president, went to what they call um, French Polynesia and he was attacked by people there over the nuclear tests, of course, that were held and which um, ended up with a, a ship in New Zealand, the Rainbow Warrior, being blown up by the French. But uh, the test remains a source of deep resentment. And just a report I read, during the visit, the president intended to establish a strong and transparent dialogue, etc. But he denied any cover-up of radiation exposure at a meeting with delegates from the semi-autonomous territory, and a report in March said the impact from the fallout was far more extensive than authorities had acknowledged, citing declassified French military documents on the almost 200 tests, and only 63 Polynesian civilians had been compensated since '96. Comment on all that? Yeah, well, the, um, the legacy of nuclear testing in the Pacific is profound. It wasn't just French, although that was very extensive. There was also American and British tests that uh, impacted on the Pacific, and there is a really deep legacy, Kevin. It's sort of hardwired into the DNA of many in the Pacific, a sense of the Blue Pacific and a nuclear-free zone. There is a strong resentment to the colonial powers and the imperial project that uh, the nuclear weapons tests were the sort of uh, pinnacle of. There is real concern in the Marshall Islands right throughout, as you say, the so-called French Polynesia and elsewhere, about the legacy impacts and the... Uh, consequence of, of waste areas and, and former test site areas being uh, impacted by changing climate. And Macron's visit recently, earlier this year, was this issue really dogged that visit. Uh, there was a high-level order that there was to be no anti-nuclear protest, that any sort of attempts to show anti-nuclear banners or position anything behind the president in walk-arounds or drive-throughs or any of that would not be tolerated by security forces. So there remains a really high level of sensitivity on both sides, resentment on one side and, and concern over transparency and consequence on the other. And this is one of the ironies of this sub thing is that we are talking about a nuclear sub, and but we've ripped up the French version of one to embrace the American and UK version of one. So I think one of the things that's come from the international responses to the Australian move to adopt nuclear-powered submarines has been a uniformly hostile response from the Pacific, Kevin. And some of that has been really disappointing. Like, you know, obviously ICANN people are in regular contact with peers in the Pacific and the level of anger and the level of, of actually profound sadness, um, you know, like the the Pacific Council of Churches had a prayer ceremony on the weekend, uh, like prayer services right across the Pacific under the banner of shame, Australia's shame. Like we are through a decade or decades of indifference to the Pacific and then decades of inaction 
on climate, which is one of the Pacific's greatest concerns, we have really shown that we're not putting a high priority on this area. And this decision last week to acquire nuclear submarines is like it, it really is profound insult to deep and lingering injury. And it, it doesn't play well for security or respect or brand Australia in the region. Yeah, which brings us, of course, to this decision about the subs. Your, your comment on that? Yeah, well, the decision about the subs, it was like a like subs are meant to deliver a surprise package, and this one certainly did last week. We went to bed on Wednesday night and woke up in a very different Australia last Thursday. We woke up in an Australia that is aggressively seeking to enter into a nuclear-based military alliance with two nuclear weapon states. And we've looked at the world that we live in and the region that we live in, and we've looked at the full suite of players. And Canberra's idea is that we're best served by hitching unequivocally and absolutely and atomically our future to Washington and Whitehall. And I think there's many in this country that would question that. Yeah, there are so many concerning aspects to this. I suppose, do you want to talk a little bit about the nuclear waste side of it and the, uh, I guess, the dangers to the environment as well? Yeah, absolutely, Zeb. And you're absolutely right in as much as, you know, there is so much that we don't know about this. It's quite extraordinary. We, We know that it's $100 billion spent but we don't know if that's capped. We don't know any of the details of the key things that you'd ask, security implications, safety implications. Where does waste go? Where does it come from and where does it go? And is that an Australian responsibility forever? Who ensures this thing? What's the risk assessment for ports that either build or service or house or host these things? Like we've already heard, from China that this makes Australia a nuclear target. We've already heard from Indonesia and Malaysia concerns about regional escalation of arms rates. India has come out and said that we're now looking now to upgrade our uh, submarine fleet. We've heard from colleagues in Japan and Korea that the Australian move to acquire nuclear-powered submarines is fueling moves in those nations military hawks to move their submarine fleets to nuclear powered and potentially nuclear armed. So the flow on effects of this on a diplomatic level, on a defence posture level and on an Australian impact level, like what does this mean for cost, for risk, for safety? What does it mean for our ports and our seas and our waters? What's our emergency capacity in this country? If there's an accident, a fire, some sort of incident, terrorism, an attack. If one of these things goes wrong, because what we do know, Seb, about maritime reactors is that they have far less shielding and far less containment than terrestrial ones. And we've already seen lots of times that the terrestrial ones aren't up for the job anyway. So you've effectively got an atomic tin can floating and not just in risky areas, but in areas where they're actually designed to be in conflict zones. Um, so, like, it's a dangerous combination of stuff. And it's not chicken little to be wanting to know before Australia gives a blank check to something as profound as this, how much does it cost? Where's the rationale of why it's worth it? Is it the best option? What does the waste mean? What's the safety? Who insures this place? Et cetera, et cetera. So we really want to hear more. We believe that the parliament and the people have a right to actually know more and have some input into what is such a profound decision. Um, and that would be in keeping with, you know, a democratic and inclusive country. And if we're saying that we're doing this, you know, we, the Australian state, is doing this to make our people safer and to protect our way of life, then that's then let's put that to the test. Is this what people want? Does it make us safer? Is this the sort of way of life we value? to be in a nuclear military alliance with two weapon states that are not meeting their international commitments under international law. Like, there's a lot not to like here. There's a lot that we don't know about this. There's a lot not to like about what we do know about it. And it is profoundly destabilising and damaging 
and it casts us as a nation and it puts us very much as a nation that I think is very different to how many Australians uh, view our nation. Now, there's many of us like CR listeners and City Limits listeners and that that have a, have a critique of, you know, the nation state of Australia. But I think for most Australians, we don't look at ourselves as a country that bangs the nuclear war drum or facilitates nuclear war fighting plans. But this new proposal does. So, you know, it is a real concern. It's also a real concern the way it was unveiled as a triangulated three white guys giving the story in the early morning, highly curated theatre piece with flags designed to look in a way that all you saw was red, white and blue. It didn't matter if it had stars, stripes, bars or whatever. And it was just this sort of, this is now the new world order. Welcome. Like very Orwellian, uh, Eurasia, Europia, who are we fighting today? And it's all linked in to other people's agendas. America is concerned about China and sees Australia as the logical place. And in the American worldview, it is the logical place where you would forward deploy. Save yourself heaps of time to get into a conflict zone. There's a lot of space and the people are politically friendly. Why don't we just put a whole mob of material, personnel and capability on their unthinkable aircraft carrier and in return, we'll promise them a future sub. And for Britain, Britain's got two rationales as I see it. One is the fading imperial glory. Boris Johnson is wandering around looking for a purpose, a mission and a feedback loop that says that Britain is still great in the absence of Brexit. But the other thing is more pressing for the real, not the, not the sort of uh, the populist flag wavers in the UK, but the, the hardcore defence decision makers. And that is that there is an inevitable movement um, well, it seems inevitable, it's certainly progressively going that way, movement in Scotland to distance itself from the UK. Brexit really accelerated that. But the interesting thing here and why it applies here is because the only area in the UK that hosts the UK Trident submarine fleet is at Fast Lane near Glasgow. Now, when Scotland goes independent and Scotland brave hearts itself out of the UK, that's a very real scenario and it terrifies London. And they're thinking, where can we park our tridents and maintain a nuclear capability? And they're looking here. So for us, we think we're now playing in, you know, on a level playing field. For America, we're an unsinkable aircraft carrier. For London, we're a potential port for increasingly unpopular at home weaponry. And I don't think this serves Australia's national interests at all. And it certainly doesn't serve the interests of the Australian community, our regional community or our environment at all. Dave, do you know the details about if the uranium will be coming from Australian mines? Yeah, again, that, that falls into the question of what we know and what we don't. And at the moment, we don't. What we would understand and what the practice is, though, Megan, is that... Um, that it's likely to be pretty much an IKEA flat pack system where it's an American reactor system where you drop in American sealed unit fuel rods. Uh, they last 25 to 30 years, which is the duration of the vessel. And then at the end of that, you pull it out, you pull out that reactor core and the fuel rods. And then the question is, where do, would that go? Does that go to uh, Bungalow land near Kimber? Does it go back to Navajo land in the United States? Like who is the poor bugger on the receiving end of that issue? We don't know. Well, what is likely though, is it's likely to be a US-based system and the, the system that the US use is highly enriched uranium, HEU. So that's the propulsion, that's the fuel. HEU is generally like around 95% uh, enriched and concentrated as opposed to about 5%. In a reactor um, so it's it's immediately the thing about it is that it's immediately weapons grade material so the material that would likely be the fuel in any australian future nuclear powered reactor could also be used in a nuclear weapon and again that's one of the reasons the world is so concerned about iran's uh, nuclear centrifuge and, and enrichment program because it creates heu which is an enormously proliferation sensitive material. So it's not just a dirty bomb or a radiological bomb, 
that is available from this material, it is a nuclear weapon. Um, that's going to pose significant proliferation threats and concerns, and it poses some real obstacles there for like safety and also for compliance and approval. Like you know, there's there's a lot of concerns about where this stuff's coming from, how it will be used, and where it goes at the end of what's seen as its useful life. For every known, of course, there's about a hundred unknowns. One of which is. Could they have nuclear weapons on them? You mentioned nuclear weapons, but the good, could they have nuclear weapons on them? Um, or could there be nuclear weapons in what the um, US is going to bring into Darwin in the expansion up there? Well, that, you know, that's another question here because these, these vessels, are, they'd, they'd, be, they'd have a nuclear weapon capability, Kevin. So then it's a question of, are they tooled up that way? Like they could be, would mm. they be, is the question. And who do you trust with the answer? And particularly America has a standing policy of neither confirm or deny. You'll be aware of that. Um, And on that basis, no American vessel enters into New Zealand waters because they refuse to confirm or deny whether they're nuclear armed. So if you're working on the principle that it it could be nuclear capable and a nuclear powered submarine, new generation nuclear powered submarine is nuclear, could be absolutely capable of carrying uh, nuclear weapons. It's, it becomes a trust exercise, and that's a very scarce commodity in the nuclear world. The other thing about it is what you said. Like, there's some people are saying, "Oh, we don't have to worry about this too much. There's time for you know to do something about it because it won't happen for 20 years." What's very clear, and we've seen it very clearly expressed, is the option of leasing or housing nuclear subs now from the UK or the US as part of this agreement, and. After what happened last week, it would not be at all surprising to have an announcement next week that says two US submarines are going to port out of Fremantle in the interim under our AUKUS arrangement to provide, you know, increased defence capabilities in the Indo-Pacific region. It wouldn't be too hard a stretch at all to see that. And then that's the question of, like, well, what does that mean for Australian domestic check and balance on nuclear weapons because American nuclear submarines exist to carry nuclear weapons. A nuclear submarine exists to get quickly into deep water and not to be blown up in, a, in the initial nuclear exchange. That's the, that's the foundation premise of nuclear submarines, that they survive the first nuclear attack and give you a credible retaliatory capacity. That's their rationale. So if we're hosting them, we'd have to think that we've just entered into next level of creepy business. And a target. Absolutely a target. China's already said that. Now, you know, um, I don't believe that we should base our domestic defence on not alienating China. We should be like cricket player. You know, you play each ball on its merits and we should view Chinese situation and respond to Chinese situation each way. But, like, there are so many levels of response that Australia could make before jumping into a nuclear war fighting arrangement with the UK and the US. And rather than subs, maybe Australia could get on China's radar much quicker and much less destructively and divisively by not focusing on subs, but Kevin focusing on ships. We've spoken lots of time about, you know, the rapacious nature of Australia's rip and ship extractive export industries. If you stopped iron ore ships for one week out of Port Hedland, and stopped at that feed to China, people would be ringing up to be talking at the table about how do we deal with this situation. So instead of prioritising Rio Tinto and BHP's lines of profit and trade, and instead of isolating that aspect of Australian society and threatening every other aspect of Australian society by elevating a warfighting ability, we should be exploring really every option before you go down the nuclear one. And how much um, is this already a done deal? I I wasn't entirely sure when this announcement was made. You know, has Labor already fully agreed to this? Obviously, the Greens have come out against it. And there's also been that interesting Rex Patrick, who we actually were mentioning just before in our other conversation, wants to launch an inquiry, which is especially interesting because he's a big submarine fan, um, but obviously not to this extent. So, yeah, how, how much is this, like, definitely going to happen? Absolutely delivered and presented as a fait accompli, Zed. 
Um, it's a long way from that in as much as there, there's been no contracts for whatever contracts are worth in contemporary Australia these days. There's been no contract signed. There's been no detail. Like there will be some flamboyance and some, some inking of papers this week in Washington with the Prime Minister, but there is very little operational result from this so far. The operational result from this so far, as we understand it, is an 18-month intergovernmental working group to explore a roadway, a pathway forward. So in relation to the politics, Labor, understandably and predictably, are scared of the wedge that comes with, you know, what they call the khaki election. You know, the conservative media love to jump on Labor and say they're soft on crime and they're soft on defence. So Labor are concerned about that. So they didn't come out and condemn this. They put a few caveats. They didn't come out all the way with LBJ. They put a few caveats in and they said that it must not lead to a civil nuclear industry. It must not lead to nuclear weapons and it must be compliant or consistent with all countries and all parties' obligations under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Now, our, our initial sense is that uh, there is a first-cut case that the position of the UK and the US is not consistent with their obligations in international law under the NPT. So that's certainly an area to further explore. But, you know, Labor, whilst they've given broad support to, you know, all steps to secure the nation, they've still got a number of um, concerns and caveats on this nuclear deal. Uh, it's very hard because, like Kevin said before about knowns and unknowns, it's very hard for us sitting in lockdown central to be able to have a manifestation of concern or to find ways of how can we meaningfully influence such a high-level deal. You know, like you wake up in the morning and there's the UK Prime Minister, the US President and your Prime Minister there in a triangulated theatre piece. That's a high level of orchestration. And, you know, submariners had hoped that subs leak as little as this plan did because no one had heard boo of it till it broke water last Thursday. So the politics have yet to play out. Um, Rex Patrick not being a full drum banging devotee of it is interesting and positive. Labor putting some critical points in there is important. I think, you know, what's really important now is that we elevate a call that this is such a profound strategic change, a diplomatic and defensive change with really long-term implications for Australia that the parliament and the people should have some mechanism for looking at some of these details before we give a blank check to what is a very, very risky and very divisive approach. Um, Dave, we've got about five minutes left with you. Thanks so much for joining us again. And I noted that the Washington Post um, reported that this deal with America effectively cancelled a $66 billion agreement to buy diesel-powered submarines from, from France. Have you heard anything about that? Yeah, it was actually more. It was a ninety. It was a ninety billion dollar deal, and that is that's quite extraordinary. That's a dimension of this that um, I think it's quite extraordinary that it hasn't been picked up more. Like mm. there must be people in the Labor Party thinking, imagine if we'd done this. Imagine if we had ripped up without any public process at all, without any expert trail or evidence trail or interrogation at all, ripped up a ninety billion dollar contract that is like a state-to-state -state agreement that was negotiated over two years with the highest level of security classification and clearance. Like you would think, and the French are gobsmacked and ropeful. I'm not sure if you've seen, but, mm. um, you know, like the stab in the back, betrayal, yeah. treachery. Incomprehensible. These are statements yeah. that are like in the diplomatic world, stab in the back, betrayal, treachery, they're, they're, that's big language. That's elevated language. You know, mm. the withdrawal of uh, ambassadors from Canberra and Washington back to Paris. It was interesting they didn't withdraw their ambassador from the, from the UK because they said every, everyone knows that the UK can't be trusted anyway. So there's no need to make a point. Like, like the level of diplomatic a anger over this is really high. And yeah. so, the, so the question is, you know, like, so the French are unhappy and, you know, it does show this real uncertainty and I think you know going back to that question of what would Labor if, if Labor had said we've ripped up a 90 billion dollar contract 
without any independent or, or open scrutiny. And this is the new thing we're doing, which is going to cost more, but we can't not quite sure yet how much more. But trust us on this. I don't think the Australian newspaper would be calling it bold. Mm. You know? No, in fact, they, the Herald Sun said they were cutting our losses, uh, whereas uh, the good example was um, the Andrews government and the East-West Link, which they promised they wouldn't proceed with anyway, but the Herald Sun's never forgiven them about wasting all that money. Absolutely, Kevin. Absolutely. You know, like if, if it was if it was that, it would be that we have, uh, you know, scared any investor away from investing in Australia because you don't get a higher level of assurance than a government to government contract for military spooky stuff that's gone through two years of spooky clearance for the before you sign the paper. That's a high level of assurance. And then for that yeah. to be ripped up, any like. Any investment, if you were an overseas investor, you'd be wondering, like, how does this how does this go? So I'm amazed that that question of that aspect hasn't been picked up more. And I'm surprised and also disappointed that the question of Australian sovereignty, as in having an independent and nuanced diplomatic and military position to world events, hasn't been picked up more. And there just seems to have been this sort of rush towards reporting on some of the diplomatic responses and some of the, oh, is this exciting technology or not? You can stay underwater longer. Like that's really uh, what it's come down to. But Australia is getting into very deep, very troubled, very stormy waters. I'm not sure if we want to be under them for longer. I think we need to come to the surface. Dave, we're running out of time, but we do want to catch on something else. Of course, it has brought out, you say we have to try and stop it. But the other side is that the usual suspects, the Minerals Council's come out saying well, now we should go nuclear altogether, a nuclear industry here. And um, the National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, Daniel Walton, said that if we shut this off as an option, that is going nuclear here, we will be letting loud scaremongers triumph over the environment and our economy. So the usual suspects are coming out now saying, well, this is a, this is a open opening for us to go nuclear in power and industry. There's no question, Kevin, this is very much one of our real concerns from an environmental perspective is that this isn't a star, but it's a Trojan horse. And mm. it is introducing uh, a technology that has been roundly rejected multiple times by Australian fire, literally fire under the radar way. Um, we're calling on Prime Minister Morrison. He made two concessions when he announced this, which is, again, tribute to the efforts of many people over many years. One is that he said that this isn't about introducing a civil nuclear industry in Australia, and two, he said it's not about us getting nuclear weapons. So our call to Prime Minister Morrison, and we hopefully will be escalating this, is that in relation to nuclear weapons, before he starts waving his sword, he should pick up his pen, he should sign the Nuclear Prohibition Treaty, and he should send a signal to Jakarta, to Beijing, to the world that Canberra doesn't want nuclear weapons. In relation to a civil nuclear industry, it is high cost, high risk, too slow, not a climate response. There's 47 dot points why you wouldn't go there. And what uh, Prime Minister Morrison needs to do is to reinforce that the two pieces of federal legislation that preclude the nuclear civil nuclear industry in Australia are sacrosanct and they will not be changed or undermined by his government. And he needs to jerk the chain on some of the crew in his own very, very scrappy mutinous crew who are calling for increased nuclear power, Matt Canavan and all of them, and put down that uh, this is about propulsion, not explosions, and that there is no place for a civil nuclear industry in Australia. That's a good note to finish up. To finish up on, yeah. Yeah. Dave, uh, yeah, it's, we'll, we'll have to keep in touch on this, obviously, because it's going to be ongoing, but uh, it's not a, great, uh, not a great week, as you said. But thanks for your time, and we'll obviously follow up on it. And... Uh, uh, in lockdown, it's even just very briefly. In lockdown, it must be even harder to get these campaigns rolling along. Oh, it's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult. There, there was a piece in in the Fairfax Media over the weekend, that it, and it said that in earlier times, an announcement like this would have brought thousands onto the streets, and there's not now. And that's an example that the nuclear opposition to nuclear is fading. And you just sit there and you think, how frustrating is that? Because if thousands of us got on the streets, and we could have got, there's a lot of people concerned about this. Like, you know, that would be unsafe. That's the primary mm. thing. But the second thing is we would be getting an absolute flogging by the Herald Sun about, you know, here, uh, look at this irresponsible behaviour. You say you care about the environment, yet you're risking people, blah, blah, blah. So I think all those sort of things add to the sense of, like, I cannot believe 
the direction that a few fellas are taking our country and we need to wrest it back or at least contest that, that direction. Yeah. All right, Dave, I'm going to have to leave it there, but thanks for your time again, and we'll, well, unfortunately, unfortunately, I suspect we'll be talking again fairly shortly. Yeah, I think so. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Always good to talk with you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Dave Sweeney there. Dave is, of course, the anti-nuclear campaigner at the Australian Conservation Foundation. And next week on City Limits, it's um, a fifth Wednesday. And I'm going to leave you too, um, Zeb and uh, Meg, to work out what you're doing because I'm going to have a week off next week. All right. <laughs> we'll work something out. You're listening to City Limits. That's been our show for this week. We'll see you next week for the fifth Wednesday in the month. 3 a wetening of a rainbow dawn And the sun will rise up high There's a whisper in the morning light Saying get up and meet the day Inside my mind there's a tribal voice And it's speaking to me every day And all I have to do is to make a choice Cause I know there is no other way All the people in the world are dreaming Get up, stand up Some of us cry, cry, cry For the rights of survival now Get up, stand up Say, come on, come on Stand up for your Just gone before you the
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.